Our scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 5. This is another one of those long narratives. We won't read all of it, but we'll read most of it. And now we have a new king. It's King Belshazzar in Babylon. And this is the story of his encounter with Daniel and Daniel's sermon before this particular king and the consequences of it. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of the silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, he brought. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple. The house of God in Jerusalem and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine. They praised their gods of gold and silver, bronze, wood, and iron and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. In verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you from the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in to before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation and they cannot show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. 
He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild oxen. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine with them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter, many. God has remembered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tiki, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. The word of the Lord. One more time, what a story. All the stories in Daniel are fantastic. <clears throat> so much so that if you read much liberal biblical scholarship, and I read it all the time, read way too much, fascinated by it, they started out by saying that this very first verse of this chapter is so filled with inconsistencies and unknowns and, and uh, mistakes and errors that it couldn't possibly have a word of truth in it and the whole thing is a legend. And of course that carries sway in a lot of minds, especially people that don't want to believe the word of God. And the reason people don't want to believe the word of God is God has said something in his word. And most of what's God said in his word is not too favorable to sinful mankind. So it's a whole lot easier to develop an intellectual problem with what God has said than it is to deal with what God has said and see if it has any historical, any reality, any veracity. One of the interesting things about this particular passage is uh, the Old Testament's been studied for literally thousands of years. It has been studied widely and it's been studied well. And one of the things is there's been quite a bit of scholarship taking place in the late eight, uh, 1800s and throughout the 1900s. And we are the heirs in our denomination. We may not know so much about it, but there is a fantastic group, small group of old time scholars that dug around in the word of God and really did do their homework with respect to historicity, looking at the archeological records, the linguistic records, and all sorts of things 
that helps us understand the truthfulness and the validity of what the Bible says. And in just almost in every page, these guys would spend time, multiplied hours, writing papers and, and articles in journals, doing good heavy duty scholastic work to help us, those are students. One of these Old Testament scholars, and these men, by the way, were uh, clustered around the old Westminster Seminary, which started in the early uh, 1900s. It was a, a spin off of Princeton Seminary, the old school, and it took a handful of very young and very bright scholars, and they spent their careers, for the most of them, most part, there. Men like Robert Dick Wilson and Edward J. Young, E.J. Young especially, wrote one of the very best commentaries, I rely on it, just about every week uh, in our study of Daniel. And he assures us and comforts us of some of the things that are not that big of a problem. For example, the first problem is King Belshazzar, uh, uh, that's a problem right there. <laughs> they claim Belshazzar was never king of Babylon, never king of Babylon. And so we had to go back and work and dig it out and he wasn't a very significant king. In fact, he was the last king and he only served for a small time. Most of the time taken up between the great Nebuchadnezzar and the reign of Belshazzar was a king Nabonidus. Nabonidus had a 40 plus year reign, but Nabonidus was a, a man who enjoyed everything that, that Nebuchadnezzar the Great had done and sort of enjoyed doing everything except the detail work. And he gladly took on one of Nebuchadnezzar's descendants, maybe a grandson, and made that young man a vice regent in the kingdom, historically. And he only served a few years, but he was recognized. He had all the prerogatives of king. He was called the king. He lived in the palace. He exercised all the authority. When he threw this feast, it was a king's feast. And this is our man, Belshazzar. In fact, did live, but had a kind of a unique career in that ancient world. And so King Belshazzar throws a feast, as was his prerogative. It was done all the time in the ancient world. This one had pretty much the characteristics of what you would expect. It was a thousand people. That's probably a big round number. That's quite a few people when you consider you have wives, concubines, you have attendants, and for months you have, uh, you have various entourages, and sometimes a feast like this will go for multiple days, even multiple weeks, and it involves a lot of people. You feed a lot of people, and this is what they had done. But it was more than just eating and drinking it, it devolved into a worship service. As we read in the text, they spent their time in portions of this great festive occasion singing hymns of praises to their idols. And what's more, it's highly suggestive, but nevertheless, I believe it probably is true based on what went on in the ancient world. These things also with the bringing in of the concubines in addition to the wives, it turned into an orgy. So here they have this great feast, they have lots of wine, drunkenness, debauchery, idolatry, and all of this is going on right in front of everybody. In fact, they were quite proud of this great ceremony. And while they're in this time of having this feast, Belshazzar gets the idea that, I'll tell you what will really put this feast on the top shelf. 
And that is if we can find those vessels, those holy vessels, those golden vessels, those bowls and chalices and, and, and utensils and instruments that were, that were plated and overlaid with gold, some of them even solid gold, that is something years ago captured in the temple in Jerusalem way back, probably 70 something years ago almost at this point, had been captured in Jerusalem and had been absconded and hauled into Babylon and had been in some kind of storage or display or something ever since. That'll make this the perfect festival. If we can just use those vessels, those, those vessels from the temple, it'll show that we not only have conquest of all the peoples and all the languages and all the nations, but we also have covered everything, including defeating any rival God to our pantheon here in Babylon. This was a religious feast. This was a very much of a worship service. And so you see what happened is that as the thing was really getting to going very well, it was interrupted. And it was interrupted by a hand writing on a wall. It was opposite the lampstand, lamp so it was in view of the light. It was projected, as it were, upon the wall, and everybody could see it. It is writing strange characters. A few um, letters, literary characters, were being written. Belshazzar couldn't figure out what in the world it was, and so he did, as we've seen now several times before. The king of Babylon will call for those guilds of wise men, the astrologers, the magi, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and ask them what it is. And in every case, knowing that most preachers are in it for the money, they would give them great reward if they could interpret these writings. And nobody could. And the king was overwhelmed. Now the passage that we, we missed here was Belshazzar really was... Uh, visibly upset. His color had changed. He was very fearful and trembling, but didn't really have recourse until the queen mother entered the room. We're not sure exactly who she was. She may have been one of the younger wives, survivors of the harem of Nebuchadnezzar the Great, but at least she was a royal wife, a queen. And she came in to tell Belshazzar about Daniel. Now, Daniel's been there all along. This is uh, coming toward the end of Daniel's career. The stuff he did when he was real young, you know, with not defiling himself with the king's um, wine and the king's food. He was quite a young man. Those things he did early and talking about the interpretation of the great image and the vision. Uh, last week, he was probably 20 or something years into his ministry there, his service there in Babylon, when Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar to give him what ended up being bad news and letting him know that there was going to be eventually an end to his kingdom. And that ordeal that they went through when finally God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and when Nebuchadnezzar was restored, he, he put out proclamations. A couple of them were actually in the text about the nature of what he had discovered about the most high God, the God of the heavens. But all of that to a younger, more distant regent like Belshazzar doesn't really matter much. 
You'd be surprised how young people don't pay any attention to old people. You'd be surprised because whatever the old people went through, that was then, that was old, that was happened then. It, you know, who knows, it doesn't matter anymore. We're living in a new day, new opportunity. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing back then anyway. We've come so far in our science, our technology, and our social awareness, et cetera. So whatever it was in his sermon, Daniel's gonna give poor Belshazzar the benefit of the doubt. And so I think you know this story about old Nebuchadnezzar in his dealings and having become like an ox and then being humbled and then being restored. Uh, I think Daniel's just giving the king the benefit of the doubt on that. I don't think he knew about it or cared, but he didn't, hadn't heard of Daniel. And it was the queen mom that told him the story and she repeated what had happened earlier. And that's why Daniel was called. He was called in to give the interpretation. What I love about this more than anything else is that when Daniel comes in to, to address the king and then ultimately to translate, interpret, and, and uh, give the meaning of the handwriting on the wall, he puts it in the form of a sermon. It would have been easy for old Daniel to just answer what he was asked. Like, what does this mean? You know, give us the Reader's Digest version. We don't want to hear a long sermon. We don't want to hear a lot of technical background. We want to hear, what's the bottom line? What does this mean to me now? But Daniel didn't do that. Daniel addressed the king, and his, his address begins there in verse 18. And this is a language of, of the royal court. It says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness, glory and majesty. And because of his greatness, he gave him all peoples, nations, languages, and uh, trembled and feared before him. Whom he would have killed, he killed. Whom he kept alive, he kept alive. In other words, the Lord God is the one that gave your predecessor, your ancestor on this throne this great kingdom. I imagine Belshazzar his whole life had been educated in a school where he'd pretty much been taught that it was the wisdom and the power and the might and the cunning and the skill and the superiority of the Babylonian culture and armies and all the rest. I'm pretty sure that was his perspective. Daniel says he was given this that he might have some indication of who the Lord God is. And one of the interesting things about Nebuchadnezzar was that the Lord got through to him. And so Daniel tells him the story. And it says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he might deal proudly, he was humbled down, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. So Daniel tells the story of what we looked at last week. It was an old story. It was 40-something years old. It was in the annals, but it wasn't in anybody's immediate memory. Daniel has to go back to the very beginning and say, what you have, everything, comes from God. It is a grant from God. It is a giftedness from God. And it comes with it 
comes responsibility and sacred duty. And what you have done, and here Daniel moves in his sermon, So the Lord dealt with Nebuchadnezzar until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And here's the old prophet. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. It's not hard to have a prideful heart, especially when your perspective is so limited. When you don't see God's hand and God's power in everything, everywhere. When you basically have adopted a materialistic and a, an everyday naturalistic worldview. Why should you praise God for the heavens and the earth? He didn't create them. Why should you praise God for the stars and all the green? He didn't think that up. Why should you praise God for the intricacy of the human cell? He didn't design that. Where does God have any, any grounds for any credit? And you get your culture just about like ours is now. And there's just not any grounds for praising the Lord. In fact, there's not any grounds of believing in the Lord. In fact, the Lord is precluded. He's not even part of the conversation. And that's where we're headed, by the way, in this postmodern thought. We're headed to a place where the Christian worldview will not be a plausibly admissible uh, worldview in public conversation. It, if, if you believe in some kind of creation, if you believe in some kind of intelligent design, if you believe in some kind of, of divine origin, if you have a God in your perspective, we don't want to hear you. We don't want to hear you in the marketplace. We don't want to hear you in the university. We don't want to hear you in the church. We don't want to hear you anywhere. It is not plausible what you're saying. Come in here and give us a lecture with three-dimension illustrations on how the earth is flat. And we'll believe you before we believe all this nonsense about creation and design, et cetera, et cetera. And that's exactly the mindset. And we talked about this a few weeks ago when we started this series. We're gonna to have to jump a few gaps. We're gonna to have to cross the Euphrates River a time or two, maybe the Atlantic Ocean a time or two, but we're not that far from Babylon in America this morning. He that hath ears to hear, hear. He that hath eyes to see, see it. And be on your knees and your face before God. What shall we do? What shall we do as a church? PCPC. What shall we do as a denomination? PCA. What shall we do as an individual and a family with respect to this difference in worldview? That's all poor Daniel's doing. Daniel was a believer in God. He prayed to God three times a day and he was dedicated to God. He had, he had committed himself to the Lord. He, had, wasn't, he just hadn't made a decision when he was uh, 10 years old in a, in a youth camp. He had committed his life to the Lord. He had lived his entire life in this pagan, God-denying, God-ignoring environment. And so here he is as he speaks. He's brought before the highest authority in the land. And so he tells him what his problem was. But this goes beyond just perspective. 
Uh, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You've put yourself in a, in a seat that is a higher seat. You've given yourself a view that is a higher view. But you've done more than that. And this is where I hope something hits our conscience this morning. And the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, they've drunk wine. Not only had Belshazzar exalted himself above the Lord, but he had defied the Lord. He had managed to find one of the very few places on earth where God had specifically said, this is holy. And if you go back and read the early chapters in the Pentateuch, when God had them build the tabernacle and the vessels and then later on the temple and everything they did, there was one word that just carried over through everything and that was the word holiness. Everything was holy to the Lord. It was not to be defiled. It was not to be touched. It was not to be misused. The vessels were holy. The Ark of the Covenant was holy. The priesthood was holy. Everything in ancient Israel, God set up a particular zone where they could recognize the uniqueness and the, the transcendence of God, the true God. So God made certain things holy, designating them to be holy. Israel was a holy people. And Nebuchadnezzar had just gone in there and thrashed right through them and destroyed the temple and hauled off the vessels and all of the riches of the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had done his part in defiling holy things. And now Belshazzar's right there with him. Was not content to just ignore God, let God be something on the outside, the periphery of his thinking, of his worldview, of his life, and his, his understanding of himself and his kingdom and his power and the nature of, of, of the reality around him that he had inherited. No, he had to go a step further. He had to defile the Lord God. And every once in a while in the Bible, you'll see a picture of a man who can't stand the defilement of the Lord in something else. That was in the eyes of David when he looked at Goliath, when Goliath was defiling the Lord of hosts. God's holy army. It was in the eyes of Isaiah when he looked around and saw the temple worship service in all of its splendor. The throne room and the Lord high and lifted up and the seraphim and the angels and all that around. And he realized that he lived in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And that he was a man of unclean lips. Holy defilement is something every true child of God has learned, needs to learn to recognize and to avoid. You need to learn to live your life in recognizing those things of God which are sacred, holy. Not because there's an intrinsic holiness or an innate capacity for something to be holy, 
But God says it's holy. It's operative upon the mere sheer word of God. And that's the way God wants us to live. He created the whole universe with mere sheer word. And that's the way we are to live all of life. Obeying every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that should be the goal of a believer, moving toward that place where he, he, he honors that which God honors. He, he recognizes as holy that which God recognizes. There are a handful of things that we have already defiled that God made holy. First thing God made holy, in addition to the creation of the whole universe and the world, was life. Life is sacred to God. If you want to put a body in a laboratory and tell me how many minerals are in it and how much water it's composed of and try to show me the electrochemical uh, forces and, and take a pure naturalistic view of a human body and look around in there with a scalpel and probe and, and picture and say, I can't find a soul anywhere in here. If that's your modus operandi, you have defiled the life that God created. Another thing that's been defiled in our modern world is the notion of truth. There's a lot of passages. Y'all read the book of Jeremiah. Poor old Jeremiah. His preaching was just sad because he said, Truth has fallen in the streets. Where is the truth? In business, where is the truth in education? Where is the truth in government? Where is the truth in medicine? Where is the truth today? What happens to it? We've come up with so many devices to prevaricate, to misspeak, to spin. And now truth is a lost commodity. And if you lose truth, you lose basically the capacity of human thought and more importantly, the capacity to communicate human thought from person A to person B. There's got to be some commonality. We believe God created the human being to understand other human beings and to live on this earth and language capacity and thought capacity, et cetera, an ordered universe and an ordered person with an ordered mind. And there used to be a lot of emphasis upon what kind of mind was disordered, what kind of thinking was abnormal. No such concept anymore. You ought to start reading the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and see how many well-ordered things are now just another syndrome or just another diagnosis or explanation or what used to be a perversion or a disorder or an abnormality, those categories have been eliminated. If there's no disorder, no disability, none of that, then how can you determine if what is normal usual, standard, ordinary, garden variety, grade A variety, whether that has any validity to it. The great question of truth has fallen through the modernist assault upon 
classical thinking, and now we have a postmodern thought, which is a fun world to live in if you're not interested in any kind of uh, stability. <laughs> it's just fun to think whatever thoughts you want in whatever direction. You can name as many genders if you'd like. You can do this, you can do, but, you know, but when it comes down to getting down to really have to face some realities of life on earth, it's devastating. Devastating. The loss of truth is the loss of the human mind's capacities to work with validity, proof, evidence, things that we depend on in our justice system and, and in our scientific world every day. Another area of defilement is obviously marriage. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. He created man. Male and female created he them. How much defilement has pushed against those simple biblical phrases? Have we defiled in our culture that which God has set as holy? The marriage relationship is so holy to God that he defines his own relationship to his people, Christ and the church, in those terms. Yet we have defiled it. Well, I'm about out of time, but let me just, you ever wondered what the, what these words mean? <laughs> what was the point of this message? Uh, Daniel just now getting to it. He, poor King sitting there thinking, hey, I've heard all this fundamentalist talk before, you know, some maybe way back, I don't know. You know, let's get to the point. What, what's the message mean? Well, here's what the message means. And so Daniel comes to read the message. He looks at the handwriting on the wall. And he says these words, and it's spelled out there in our, in our text in 24 and following. One of the interesting things I've always thought is how in the world did the Babylonians miss this? Here's the cultural center of the world, the place where language, as one language ended, multiple language started. They had every kind of scholar on the face of the earth. They knew every kind of alphabet. They had, they had hieroglyphic scholars. They had cuneiform scholars. They had Ugaritic, Akkadian. They had Hebrew script. They had everything you possibly imagine, pictorial. How can these wise men, this cadre of smart guys that they always bring up to answer these, why couldn't they at least say, oh, I know what that is, that's a letter, uh, well, that's a sheen, or that's a, you know, far, I don't know. They couldn't identify the characters, much less give any indication of the meaning. And of course, that was on purpose. God was putting that message up there, especially for Daniel. This is one of those ways in the book of Hebrews talks about how God in various ways and in various times uh, spoke to the the fathers by the prophets through strange ways. This is one of them, strange way. And it was a shocking way, but this is, this is the message. And let me give it to you word for word. Three words, many. It means a unit of measure, a weight. There's a mince here. There's a measurement here, some kind of measurement, probably a weight measurement instead of a volume measurement or a length or height measurement. There's a, there's a measurement here. And that word was the first bullet point for Daniel to let the king know that the king and his whole reign had been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Because that's what the next word means, tekel. It means wanting 
lacking, deficient, falling short. Belshazzar's life had all of a sudden come to judgment day. And the judgment day said, here's the stuff of this life. Weighed, measured, evaluated, lacking. Not up to what it needs to be. Sorely deficient. In fact, there's some expansion of this says it's a, it's a life it's not even worth considering. It is so shallow. It is so godless. It is so meaningless. It is so profane. It is so void of the holy and the sacred. And then Perez. That's the name of one of the patriarchs, by the way, in the book of Genesis. And it means divided. And that was the judgment. The kingdom was going to be divided. It was going to be divided principally from the Babylonians and it was going to be severed and given to another kingdom. That was the principal division. But some easily see that what was the, the kingdom it was given to was the Medo-Persians, which they, they themselves were somewhat divided. So it was almost like, I'm going to divide your kingdom, finish you, and give it to someone else and that someone else will be a divided people as well. And so here's what we have. We have the judgment of God. That was it. That was the last, that was the last day for Belshazzar. I'll bet you that morning when he was pouring that wine and drinking out of those cups and looking at all those beautiful women dancing around there and just looking around at all the power and the splendor and sitting there thinking, he had no idea that he would not see sunset. He's no different from you or, or me. We don't know when God's hand of judgment will say, that's it. Draw the curtain. It's over. Whatever you've done, it's in the books. It's over. We are so far in our way of thinking of the reality of the final judgment of God upon each and every human being. We don't even hardly know how to phrase the doctrine. Certainly can't find it very well in Scripture, and it's everywhere. Every time you turn around, the measure of God's judgment is just waiting. God is long-suffering. God is patient. God is merciful. All of that is true, but it is true only because the absolute righteousness of God calls for an absolute justice, and an absolute justice calls for a verdict on a judgment day. A guilty, not guilty. And whether we realize it or not, sitting here in our kind of naive little fairy tale world we live in, watching our little media and enjoying ourselves, we don't think much about that final assize, that final judgment day, do we? But it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. I think some of the some of our forefathers gave a little more time and attention, a little more fear, a little more dread, a little more caution, a little more anxiety about where they're going to stand before the Lord on the judgment day. But we are going to stand. And we are going to give a reckoning. And let me just preach one ounce of gospel here. If you've come to Christ, you've already been judged. Because you want to know what God thinks about a sinner? Look what he did to his own son on the cross. 
That's what God has in, in store for every single sinner. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was smitten by God. Christ on the cross is the display, God's display, his pageant of what God will do with a certified sinner. And he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He bore that particular judgment that is due us. And when we come to him and seize by faith and repentance, confessing our sins and calling upon him for salvation, God takes his book and reckons our account to Christ's account. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. A Christian can hear the most fearful, dreaded sermon on the judgment of God and can sigh deep in his soul, thank God I'm saved by the mercy of God. And by the way, the mercy of God in salvation is exclusively focused in the person of Christ. If you don't accept that particular penalty as your penalty, you're going to have to settle with God some other way. There may be some other ways to God, but I don't want to try to work it out with him after the fact on the last day. The only way you absolutely positively know is if you come to Christ now, now.